Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. Now in this text, John is pretty straightforward. Um, he is uh, laying out for us the beginning of what is the next section of the gospel that he's written. The gospel is intended for us to see Jesus for who he is. It's intended to be an instruction in how to believe what we're being told. John is telling us so that we might believe the things that are being told of Jesus and what Jesus has done and the truths that Jesus has taught. This text is pretty laid forward. It's James, James, uh, John frames for us what he's going to try to show us now from 13 all the way to 21. Uh, 22 is a, uh, a, a section where it wraps everything up, but John in this section is now transitioning us into uh, the section where it's called the book of glory, the book of exaltation. The beginning was the book of signs. The second part is the book of glory, and in between is a transition. Uh, And now, so John is going to lay out for us the beginning of the story of where Jesus is going and what he has done. And he uses this story uh, as a way for us to see the heart of Jesus. Now, if I were to ask you the question, how does someone show you that they love you? If if I were to ask you, hey, how how do you know that someone loves you? What is it that they do for you? Each of us might have different answers for that. How do you even show love to others? We show love in different ways. There's ways in which we try to show love to someone and they're not quite responding the way that we thought. And so we sometimes have to figure out what it is that we can do that they receive our love. Some of you might be familiar with uh, a book that was written a long time ago, uh, way back, I think in the 80s. It's like ancient, ancient 80s. Gary Chapman's book called The Five Love Languages, and originally it was written to help married couples figure out how to show love to one another, and then, you know, kind of as publishers do, they're like, the five love languages for kids, for singles, for parents, they just kind of multiply the, the, uh, money, the money flow. But essentially, what Chapman is on to is that there is uh, a way in which we communicate love, and there's a way that we receive love. The five love languages that he lays out is that there are either words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts. I like that one. I think that's a bonus for everybody. Everybody can receive gifts. You know, even if it's not your love language, like thank you. Uh, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, physical touch. What's missing from that list, however, is a love language that Jesus shows, which is Get this, death. Noticeably missing from that list of love languages is death. And one might ask, your, uh, ask yourself, what, what, what would that be on the list for? How does death show love? And I suppose the publisher understood that uh, in the book publishing market, if death were listed as a way to communicate love, that book would not do so good, you know? You, you saw in the title, it's like, how you can die and show others great love. It's like, oh, I hope he's speaking metaphorically. John's gospel, from this point on, is written so that we would understand, so that you would understand, so that you would know and believe, see and hear that the cross that Jesus is moving towards now, and eventually the one that he carries, and the one that he will hang on, equals love 
communicated, love shown, love enacted. In fact, the danger is so great for his own. John says that he loved his own, and we'll we'll unpack that in just a little bit. But the danger was so great for his own people, his own possession, the ones that he loved the most. The danger was so great that the only way that he could show his love for them was through death on a cross. Now, in this context, the disciples could not have understood, and they did not understand in the moment, but they would soon enough. In fact, John is the one whom Jesus loved. That's how he marks himself, the beloved, the one whom Jesus loved, John tells us in his gospel. Because Jesus' love made such a significant impact on his heart and on his mind that he couldn't shake it. And eventually, all of the rest of the disciples would soon enough, and years later, have this love imprinted on their heart that they would go to their own deaths gladly and joyfully for the sake of Jesus Christ, for his name, for his mission, and his kingdom. And so this morning, as we kind of unpack this text, I want you to see three things, three things that we see that Jesus shows us, that John shows us in this lesson that Jesus lays out for us. And then there is nestled in this a, a warning for us. Um, so this morning, if you're a note taker, you can, you can frame this morning's message like this. We see his love to the end, Jesus' love to the end, his posture as a servant, his instruction as teacher, and his commandment as Lord. His love to the end, which is what frames the whole, and then the three things that we see Jesus teaches us. His posture as a servant, his instruction as a teacher, his commandment as Lord, and we do see in this a warning a warning for us to take heed about. And my aim this morning, and what John's aim is, is that you know, as, as every Sunday morning as we come here, my hope and instruction and teaching, and any, I think, pastor worth his salt or one that preaches and teaches, is not that you would leave with data. My point is not that you would leave with data. That you would not leave here and be like, oh, it's great to know that about John's gospel and Jesus. But that you would actually, as John wants us, and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us every time we gather is to love Jesus more and more and more. So my aim is to show you his heart, which is, this is one of those passages where it's like, how can you not love Jesus when you understand what he's done? So look with me at verse uh, 1. John says, to give you some context, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is before the Passover festival, and so the Passover festival is the festival in which they celebrated uh, the exodus from Egypt. Uh, The lamb was sacrificed, an unblemished, unbroken lamb, a male lamb, and the blood was shed and painted over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. This festival was commanded to be celebrated, and here, before the Passover festival, Jesus is at a supper. In verse 2, it was time for them to be at supper. Now, there is some debate about whether or not this is the Passover supper. In the other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark, uh, this account is one in which we see Jesus teaching, and at the last Passover supper, Jesus does a lot to instruct his disciples. We're not sure whether or not this is actually a meal that is the Passover meal, or this is a supper before it. But what we do know that it's after the anointing at Bethany. If you make a left-hand turn and remember a few weeks ago that Jesus was anointed at Bethany after he rose Lazarus from the dead, and after he was anointed by Mary because Jesus had 
uh, risen her brother from the dead, that John is, is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is moving somewhere. This is year three, and he's about to go up to the temple, and he is outside of the temple, and word has been stirred about whether or not he really is the Messiah. Is this the one? And people want to make him king. And so here in 13, John pivots and says, now the hour had come. Previously, uh, people had been wanting Jesus to act, and he said what? My hour has not yet come, but the hour is here. It is before the Passover festival. And interesting enough that this is the Passover, this is the the festival, this is the, the meal that for generation after generation after generation has pointed to what Jesus is about to do. This festival is about Jesus, and they don't know it yet, but it will be forever changed in their minds about what the Passover meal meant. This is the summation with John. This verse, verse is a summation of what Kostenberger says that this entire next section is, is the mission of the exalted Jesus to the world. This is the, the start of the new messianic community and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus' hour, the moment of the most significance in history, the time when all of redemptive history comes to its zenith. At the pinnacle of the story is the cross. The entirety of the scriptures is pointing to the cross. Genesis is pointing to the cross. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the prophets, the Psalms, all of it is pointing to the cross. This is the moment Everything after the cross is just kind of the, the last tying up of loose ends. We're waiting for the, the, the story to be completely wrapped up and then the new story to begin, the new heavens, the new earth. As far as the redemptive story is concerned, all has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And here he is at his hour. He has loved his own to the end, John says. What does his own mean? Well, in the New Testament, his own possession, his own people is the new Israel, the true Israel, the ones who believe. This is the tension in the gospel because the ones who should have believed, the Jewish people, the ethnic lineage of Abraham, they see the Messiah with their eyes, but they don't believe with their hearts. But here are the 12 disciples around him. And John says that his own were in the world and he loved them to the end, which is contrary to what he says in chapter 1. If you turn real quickly with me with John chapter 1, or some of you might even know this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, John says, and all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that had been created. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome of it. Verse 10, he was in the world. This light, this creator is in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That phrase, his own people, is meant for you to understand that the people of God, the chosen people of God, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. Israel has 12 tribes. 12 tribes multiply. They become a nation. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will purchase you and I will rescue you out of Egypt. I have purchased you out of slavery and out of death and you are my people. But yet Jesus comes to his own people and his own people do not know him. But yet here in chapter 13, John says he loved his own. That's for us to recognize, okay, His own, his own what? His own people. How does he love his own people? These 12 disciples, these men around Jesus are the representation, the template of what God 
came to do, which is to begin a new uh, process of how we get reconciled back to God. It has always been in the belief in Christ. It has always been through the blood of Christ, but they have not been able to see it because Christ has not been there. It's always been through blood of, of bulls and goats. But now Jesus says, no, no, this was just a shadow of the things that come. It is my blood. Passover is about me. John says he loved his own. And so this is what we need to remember as, as John frames it for us, that Jesus deeply loved his own. Who were his own? Well, in the context, it's, it's the disciples around. He loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. And the question we should ask, how did he love them to the end? And John says, well, let me show you, verse 2. Now, that's the transition word, now. His love for his own would be demonstrated by what he's about to teach him, and not only just in verse 13, all the way to the end. You're supposed to see the cross, but we don't know that yet because we haven't read the rest of the gospel. But Jesus deeply loved these men, these 12 disciples who represent the love of Jesus that he has for his own people. Matthew Henry points out that the relationship that Jesus has with these men are special. These are poor fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're weak and they're defective in their knowledge and their grace. They're dull and forgetful. And yet, though Jesus reproves them often, he never ceases to love them nor take care of them. This is the love that Jesus shows for those who love him. He is patient with us. He endures our thick-headedness. Some of you may not be thick-headed, but I tend to be sometimes. He is patient with our dumb mistakes. I don't make any dumb mistakes, but maybe some of you do. Come on, that was funny. Jeez, my knees. Rough this morning. He loves us to the end. He loves us to the end of our life. This is what we're supposed to know. He loves us. If we were to stop right here, his love for us would be enough to meditate on for the rest of the morning. He loves us to the end through every circumstance and every failure. Everything that these men said that was dumb, even in the next few sentences, we'll see that they just don't get our end. Jesus loves them to the end. Aren't you glad that we have a God that loves us through all that? Man, this is the love of Jesus for those who love him. Jesus is... John's point is made clear in the very first verse of this passage. Jesus loved them to the end. How did he love you? How did he love them? How did he love them? Here are the three ways in which he loved them. First, let's go to chapter two, verse two. I'm sorry, verse two. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Jesus knows that the timer has started. Jesus is fully aware of the moment. He knows all that's going on. He knows the moment, and he knows what Judas is about to do. He's going to finish the work. He is about to finish the work that he started. He knows even the heart of the one who would betray him. He knows the intentions of John, Judas. John knows that. He did not know that at the time, but writing back, John is making clear for us what it is that Jesus knew and what was going on. And so Jesus acts. Side note, how, does, how is it possible that uh, the devil put this into the heart? Now, here's the thing. Judas is not a puppet. Judas uh, has his own heart, his own mind. Those of us who are born into the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are born under, we are born contrary to God's will. We, we are inclined to rebel against God. It is only by God's grace and his kindness that our hearts are softened towards him. 
But if we are unregenerated, if we're not born again, we do not have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so those who are not born again, they go their own way. And so Judas, at some point, decided, and in some of the texts of the, the Gospels, it says that he decided to betray Jesus because he didn't align with what Judas's uh, agenda was for Jesus. Jesus somehow didn't m- meet the qualifications for who Judas thought he was. Judas is stirred up by his own inclinations, but all he is, all he is, all he is, is just being nudged by the evil one. It's not like all of a sudden Judas is a blank slate and he like has this thought and the, the devil puts his thought and he's like, now you're going to betray him. No, no, Judas did that on his own, but yet all the evil one has to do is, is put it into his heart that, hey, now's the time to act. Aren't you frustrated by that? Can you believe that what Jesus, Jesus is about to do? He's not the one that you thought. And so he decided that he was going to betray him. In fact, even before this moment, he had already decided. And he had set up a deal with the high priests and the ones who were after him to be paid to translate him, uh, to, to uh, betray him. So here, Jesus, with the betrayer among him, all of them are there. But before Judas leaves, before Judas leaves, here we see one, Jesus' posture as a servant. So the frame of Jesus' love has been set for us. How, to what extent, does Jesus love them? First, his posture as a servant. In verse 4, so, knowing basically what time it was in redemptive history, he's about to teach his final lessons. So, because he knew what time it was, verse 2, now, so, cause and effect, he got up from supper laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He basically takes out, why do we wear outer clothing? The outer clothing, they had two layers. One was on the inside, an undergarment that kind of kept things, uh, you know, uh, uh, clean, I guess. And then the outer garment for uh, decoration, uh, a way in which we present ourselves. But what Jesus does here is he, in a sense, takes out the, the presentation. He goes to the base of humanity. He, he, he exposes himself and humbles himself, and he takes on a practice that is for uh, not even a practicing Jew would allow a Jew to wash another Jew's foot. A slave in the household of a Jew, if they were Jewish, if they were a bondservant, wouldn't even bend themselves down to do what Jesus is about to do. He takes a towel and he wraps it around. And the practice of foot washing has a long Old Testament tradition. If you remember Abram, who was in the tent, and guests come with Jesus himself. You can read it this afternoon. Jesus himself and the pre-incarnate Jesus with two angelic beings come, and they tell uh, Abram what they're about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19, verse 2, Abram welcomes them in. He washes their feet. He, He prepares food for them. Judges chapter 19, 1 Samuel 25. You can go back and look up foot washing. It is a way in which you, you welcomed people into your home. It is where they felt clean and, and welcomed, that their, their feet were clean from the, the travels of the day. It is a menial task that has exemplified humility. Uh, I don't know if some of you enjoy the aroma of feet. <laughs> in the summer times, the aroma of feet is something that uh, we kind of tend to avoid. Uh, I have foam flip-flops. Foam flip-flops are the worst. Do not 
wear foam flip-flops. Does anybody have an old pair of foam flip-flops where you're sweating them and then you wear them all the time and the aroma of feet is there? Last Thursday, I had the aroma of feet in our house. I was sitting there. I was at the end of the day. Uh, I wore my flip-flops all day long and my feet were off and I was just chilling in the chair and Danae was pretty far away from me and my other son, Daniel, was in the room and they were like, whew, what is that smell? And I was like, that's my feet. So Danae, naturally wanting to serve me and love me and show her love for me, got a basin, filled it with water and came and washed my feet. No, she did not do that. When my feet are dirty at the end of the day, if I've taken a shower, I tend to have a rhythm. I don't know, you know, some of you might exercise, but if I exercise in the middle of the day, I take a shower and I'm clean. But when I get to bed, if I'm wearing my flip-flops or I've walked around the the house in my bare feet or I've stepped outside into the deck, I know that my feet are dirty. I can't get in the bed without washing my feet. And so if I put my feet in the tub and I just wash my feet, I feel clean. I don't know if some of you know this feeling. Uh, I hope that you do, but if you're clean and your feet are dirty, something just doesn't feel right. We experience the, the feel of dirt, and we can connect that to the feeling of the dirt of our sin. And so Jesus here is about to show us that he is going to humble himself as a sir. What does he do? He goes around and he washes their feet. He dries them with the towel that is wrapped around him. And as a servant, he postures himself in the most menial fashion to which there is a response a teachable moment. His instruction now as a teacher comes. So he postures himself because of the love that he has, but now he has to instruct as a teacher. Look with me at verse 6. He came to Simon, and Simon's like, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? This phrase here is one of very much like a, an offense. He can't believe that Jesus is going to do that. You're going to do that? You, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't realize now. What I'm doing, you don't realize now. But afterwards, you will understand. Jesus' patience with his disciples, when they don't understand, again, comes into the foreground. Here, Jesus already is lowering himself. And Peter rightly is responding in such a way that he's like, you're not going to do that, are you? You, How is it possible you're going to serve me? Because this is such a foul thing to do. And Jesus says, you don't understand now, but you will. I'd say most of the time life is like that. We don't understand what God is doing in the moment, but when we look back, we understand. We don't do this all the time, but most of the time when we look back, we can put two and two together of of the way in which God led us through certain circumstances. And this is why that here, what is modeled for us is life together. These disciples They disbanded when Christ went to the cross, but then they came back together. And in the course of their coming back together and the Lord bringing them back together as a group, they remembered and they began to look back and they began to say, hey, do you remember when this happened? We need to write this down. Do you remember what Jesus taught us? Do you remember what we experienced? And they write this down. And this is the beauty of doing life together for a long period of time. You know, If we just bounce from relationship to relationship or church to church, the the benefit of looking back and having the experience of saying, look, we don't understand what's going on now, but give us some time. We'll figure out what's going on because over the course of the long haul, we'll be able to look back and be like, here's what the Lord did. This is kind of how things worked out. We tend to bounce prematurely. We're like, we don't like the way things are going in a relationship. We don't like the way that the church is doing things. We don't like this, that, or the other thing. And so rather than stick around, we bounce. 
Or we don't even get involved at all. We stay at arm's length and we just say, hey, I don't kind of want to commit myself to a group of people or a particular person. And when we do that, we don't have people around us that are able to say, hey, you know what? Over the course of time, I've seen you change. I've seen the difference in you. You're more mature than you were a few years ago. I see how you handle the way uh, problems come and it's an encouragement to me. Too many times we just decide that we don't like it and we, we want to bounce, but we don't want to be exposed for our weaknesses. We don't want to be exposed for our failures. We don't want to be exposed for not always knowing what to do. We don't want to receive help, but yet here Jesus is sitting at the feet of the disciples and he's saying to them, hey, you don't understand now, but give it time. You will. Stick with me just for a moment. And because they stick together, we have the Gospels. And over the next Years of their life, they will give their lives to Jesus in doing what he commanded them to do because he instructed them and he postured for them the thing that he himself is willing to do. God acknowledges their finiteness. He says, you don't understand. You're going to. He's, he's okay with us not understanding in the moment. Again, I ask the question, aren't you glad that there's a God who is patient with us? Aren't you glad that God is patient with us through our misunderstanding that even in my own heart I know that I am not patient at all as much as I would like to be with circumstances or my kids or my friends or even the direction of the church or the things out in the world but most of parenting and friendships and pastoring and shepherding and loving people is mostly about being patient it's mostly about being able to endure the pain so that in the long haul God can do a work. You don't understand what I'm doing right now, but afterward, you will. And Peter, always going to the extreme, this dude is an emotional roller coaster. Some of you have friends like this. They're like, well, if, then, then wash my whole body, Jesus. I, I'll give it all. He emphatically jumps all in. Peter's kind of like that. You know, in one moment, Peter says, uh, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, on that rock, on that message, that gospel, I'm going to build my church. And then in the, almost in the same breath, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus you're never going to die on the cross. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You're being in, he's like, Peter's like in and out, in and out, up and down emotionally. But he, he says, don't, don't just wash my feet, just wash all of me. And, and Jesus replies in that moment, he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And this is the most important thing that we need to understand, that Jesus is very exclusive in this. Jesus is saying, if I and I alone do not take care of your sin, this is, a, this is the imagery. The, the, the dirt is always in relationship to sin. Ritual cleansing is not in this. It's, John is not teaching us about ritual cleansing, but what Jesus is showing them is, is he's saying, you don't realize what I'm about to do, but I'm I am washing you for a reason. You're going to remember this and remember what I do on the cross. If I don't wash you, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Your sin has not been taken care of unless Christ has cleansed you. You do not enter eternal life, which is the purpose of Christ, to reconcile people back to himself, his own, to rescue his people, to secure his people. He's saying if you don't have a part with me, you're not being cleansed. But if I, if I wash you, if you let me do this. And so when Peter says, okay, then wash all of me, Jesus responds, listen, verse 10, one who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean. 
You, Peter, are clean. How can he say that to Peter? Well, because Peter made the true confession. All of these disciples, John is saying that out of the 12 men that are there, 11 of them have already seen Jesus for who he is and called him Messiah. That is faith in the Christ. That is faith in the cross that will accomplish. And that's how the Old Testament saints were saved. They were not saved because they trusted in the blood of bulls and goats. They were trusted they trusted in the word of God that said, when you do this, your sins are atoned. How are they atoned? Well, it's not the blood of the bull. It's the blood of my son. And so when they looked at the bulls and the goats and the, all of the blood that was spilled by the high priest, what they were looking at was Christ, but they didn't know it. And their sins were atoned for it. And what they were looking at was the cross. And now that Jesus is there, he goes to the cross. And now he's saying, my blood that is shed for you is the thing that's going to clean you. All of it will be cleansed. You have to, just like the blood of bulls and goats, you must go once a year to have a high priest. I will go before you, and I will cleanse you. You are clean if you believe me, if you trust me, if you look at me and trust that I am the one who is sent. If you believe this, you're clean, you're bathed. You only need to wash your feet. What is washing the feet? The washing the feet is the understanding that we will experience sin but just because we experience sin does not mean that our sin has not been taken care of. Peter, you believe, and there are going to be things that will come that will cause you to doubt. Sin is not one of those things that you need to doubt that I have left you nor for, or forsaken you. If you are clean, if you believe, translation, when you sin, it is just the sin of your feet. Your sin is totally taken care of, but experientially you need to clean your feet. There's more to that, and we'll, we'll keep moving on. Jesus says in verse 11 that he knows that not all of them are clean. What does that mean? The metaphor should be very clear right now. Clean equals forgiven. Belief, forgiveness, life, death, blindness, sight, hearing. John loves these easy metaphors, these comparisons. But notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is washing the feet of the one who would betray him. He, Judas is there. Jesus knew that one would betray him, and yet it doesn't say that Judas leaves until a few verses down. In verse 31, it says, when he had left. John will wrap up this section in chapter 13, verse 29, and says, once Judas leaves, it was night. That the night, the darkness, when Jesus says, I'm not going to be with you, the, the daylight is going to fade and it's going to be night. In other words, it's going to look like evil has won. Judas is about to set in motion what needs to happen. But before that happens, Jesus takes out his idol garment, wraps a towel around him, bends at the feet of Judas, looks at his eyes, knowing that he'll betray him, and he cleans his feet anyway. That is the extent of the love of a Savior who will come and give every single man, woman, an opportunity to respond to the gospel, to respond to his overtures of love. Eventually, even though Jesus serves us, even though he may in countless times save us from sin, he might expose us to the things that will bring death. He might bring things to light that cause us pain. He might com communicate the gospel over and over again. You might grow up in the church and hear this over and over again. And eventually, your actions will betray you. Judas's actions betrayed his belief. That's how they knew. He betrayed Jesus. They did not know in the time. They knew that he was a thief. They knew that he was kind of like a zealot. 
But it wasn't until after the fact that they knew for sure that Judas was not one of them. Jesus knew in the heart. He knows our hearts. Jesus knows now which of those of you who do not truly believe. And he's serving you right now. He's washing your feet right now. He's offering up the forgiveness of your sins right now. He's bent at your feet, washing your feet, saying, do you believe? Do you see me? Judas was betrayed by his actions, and ultimately our actions will betray us. John, in his epistles, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the question of the church is, why did some of the people that were in our church leave? And John says that they were of us, but not really among us. They were, they were among us, but not of us. They, they left because they, they, they didn't stay true to the very end. They, they truly did not believe. Time will tell. And ultimately, the judgment is what exposes us. There will come a time where we will stand before the Lord and Savior, and Jesus will look at us because he already knows our hearts, and he will say, you were never among. I washed your feet. I sought to love you, and yet you still rejected me. You did not believe so his love is what causes him to posture himself as a servant. And then he teaches the fact that the forgiveness of sins is to be clean and that to be part of him, to have full forgiveness is, is to let Jesus wash all of us. But we don't need to constantly feel like Jesus has not cleansed all of us, us if we sin. If we sin, it's just merely our feet. Our sins have been taken care of, but there is a, a, a lesson of being uh, able to confess those sins and to continually forgive one another. Verse 12, finally, his commandment as Lord, after he washes their feet, he asks them a significant question. Do you know what I have done for you? Do you know what I have done for you? Verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. You call me rabbi and Lord, and you are right in speaking this because that's what I am. Jesus is very clear. He's Lord. He is teacher. And he's making it very clear to them. It's like, if you call me teacher, which you're right to do, I have the instructions of life. And if you're calling me Lord, which is true, because I am the Lord of heaven and earth, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Man, packed in that is so much, but that word ought is a financial obligation. That word that he uses is you are obligated to do what I've just taught you to do. It's not, a, it's not a suggestion. It is not a kind of an encouragement. It is, you owe me this. Why do we owe you this? What does it mean to wash one another's feet? Does this mean that this is the practice that we do? We, we don't wash each other's feet here. We don't do foot washing in this church. We, there's a few things that we do week in and week out, but foot washing is not one of them. Verse 15, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. In case you missed it, that word ought, now I'll say it a different way. You should do just as I have done for you. Well, what has he done for you? What has he done for them? Well, one, he's, he's modeled a posture of humility before one another. He said, if I am the one that can bend down on the knee and wash your feet, you also ought to bend down in front of one another's feet. There is no one who is higher than the other. We love one another. John says that they will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. What task is too menial for you? Are you too busy or too, uh, too important to serve by coming to clean some toilets? Do you have not enough time to serve someone who is in need of 
maybe getting some groceries or picking someone up for church or, or serving in the kids' ministry or coming to a uh, service or what, what are the things that you are too good for? What, what is too low for you to do? Jesus is saying, there is, in case you missed it, nothing low enough that I won't go, but you don't understand how low I will go. It's not just foot washing that I am going to do for you. What I'm going to do for you is I'm going to give my very, my very life to you. He says preemptively, by laying my life down, by washing my feet, I'm only giving you a scratch of the surface by how you ought to live, not only for me as Lord, but also for one another, for also one another. We figure out that the disciples do learn this and teach this because in 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verse 10, when it gives a description of a widow who is worthy of being cared for by the church, one of the attributes for her is to be one who has washed the saints' feet. It is a character issue. It is a character of service to the church. It is, a, it is the, the model of what it is that you want to be as a man or as a woman of God, that when someone describes you, they say, you know what, anytime I ask them to do something, they're just eager to serve. Or they even serve behind the scenes, or they do these things that, like, their heart of love for Jesus is evidence because of their love for me. How does that happen? Well, that only happens if we have a love for Jesus that sets us on a trajectory that we want to be like him. How is it possible that my Lord and Savior would bend at my feet, take my stinky flip-flops off, fill a basin full of water, and clean the stench off my feet, clean the dirt off my feet? How is it possible that the Lord and Savior would do that? Well, it's possible because that is the God who delights to serve. That is the God who is reflected in Jesus Christ. Jesus is very clear. If you see me, you see the Father. He says that at the end where he says, the one who receives the one I send. In verse 20, whoever receives anyone I send, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to give clarity about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came to be the Savior of the world, the one who receives him. Jesus has been very clear. You receive the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. When you receive me, you receive the Father. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are willing to get not only on the ground, but they're willing to hang on a cross. The Father is not hung on the cross. It is only the Son, the Son who agrees to say, I will be the sacrificial substitutionary atonement for the sins of those who love me and look to me and trust me for the forgiveness of their sins. The Son hangs on the cross because the Father said, Son, this is the plan to redeem your people. And the Son joyfully goes to the cross and gives himself up for his people. And then the Holy Spirit communicates to those people, this is your Savior. And his people look to the Savior and they call him Lord. And they call him Lord and they get the Father. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rejoice with joy because it is finished. And they expect their people to do the same for one another. That's the bar that is set. That's the bar that is set. A servant is not greater than their master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus makes it very clear that if you do these things, you will be blessed. You will have a flourishing of life. If I were to summarize these lessons, here they are, these three lessons. Lesson number one, Jesus says, I love you enough to go to the cross, and washing feet is only a fraction of how much I love you guys. And it is only a fraction to the extent of which I will go to prove this to you. And lesson number two, since Peter, you brought it up, you also need to know that what I will do will make you all permanently clean. 
And the dirt on your feet is only a reminder of what is in most need of being clean, which is your body. That's the most important. You will continue to struggle with sin, Peter. You will continue to struggle with sin, church, but don't let that fool you. I have made you clean. If you have sinned this week, if you sin this next week, if you sin this afternoon, don't let that fool you that Christ has not accomplished what he told you he accomplished, which is you are clean. Finally, the third lesson, since I am Lord and Savior, since I am part of the Trinity, and since lessons are best laid out in threes, you might as well, Jesus says, take notice of the fact that I am the Lord God, master of the universe, and I just cleaned your nasty feet. And if I can do this, and I can do this with joy and delight and love for you, this ought to be the practice that you make towards one another. This is the tone that Jesus sets for his church. This is the tone that we ought to have with one another. We all need a bath. Everyone needs a bath. And everyone has stinky feet, right? What does it look like when a church so loves one another that though we have differences and though we may rub each other the wrong way, that we don't hold faults, we don't hold records of wrong, that we don't let our emotions get the best of us, that we think the best of one another, that we remind ourselves that, geez, if Jesus, the Lord and Savior, master of the universe, died for me, can I not die to myself so that I can show love to a brother and sister who just annoys me to no end? Think of the implications that has for those of us who are parents, friends, spouses. Man, what would happen if the world saw a people that were loved so much by God, that they loved each other with such a way that is just not found outside the, the proverbial walls of the church? Do you need forgiveness this morning? It's offered to you fully and completely in Jesus Christ. Is there someone perhaps that you need to forgive? I'm certain that in your mind right now is that person, even in this church family, who you have not forgiven completely. The truth of the matter is, is that if Jesus Christ can do what he did for us, we also are not just encouraged but commanded to do the same. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.